Pilot's Plain Tales from Humble Beginnings. In 1907, he was born in a tiny terraced house in Coventry to a father who was an inventive practical engineer, but whose piston ring company had failed. With no money coming in, his education was cut short, and he turned to helping his father out in a workshop, but all his spare time was spent studying in a local library. He loved to read about astronomy, engineering, turbines and the theory of flight. By fifteen, the diminutive Frank Whittle was determined to become a pilot in the Royal Air Force. Little did the world know what a contribution this man was to make to all our lives. He was a bright young man, and despite his abbreviated education, he passed his RAF entrance exam with high marks, but his career looked like coming to a very quick end. Reporting to RAF Halton as an aircraft apprentice, within only two days he was told his short stature was enough for him to fail his medical. Whittle was nothing if not determined, and he put himself through a vigorous training program and diet to build his physique. However, his next application also failed, and he was told not to try again. Undeterred, he applied once more, this time under an assumed name, and started three years of training as a mechanic at RAF Cranwell. He hated military discipline, and convinced that he would never become a pilot, he considered deserting, but his skill at model building and mathematics caught the eye of the apprentice's commanding officer. Taking an interest in the young man, he was so impressed he recommended Whittle for officer training. This was the chance of a lifetime, as part of his officer training would include flying lessons in an Avro 504. Whilst he was heading towards this dream, Whittle was finding the path far from smooth. He was an ex-apprentice who disliked team games, and he was amongst loud and brash public schoolboys. The social gap was hard to bridge. However, he was not going to throw away this opportunity, and he excelled in his courses and flying lessons. After quickly going solo, he progressed to the Bristol Fighter, gaining a reputation for daredevil low-flying and aerobatics. A requirement of his training was to produce a thesis for graduation, which he titled Future Developments in Aircraft Design. Whittle discussed potential aircraft design, including the concept of a motor jet, basically an afterburner fitted to the exhaust system of a piston engine to provide additional thrust. On graduation, he won the Andy Fellows Prize for Aeronautical Science, and despite the numerous red ink entries in his logbook, warning of showboating, overconfidence and dangerous flying, was described as an above-average to exceptional pilot. He was posted to Treble One Squadron, where his flying antics nearly led to a court-martial, but he continued his work on the motor jet, pondering the problems of the weight of a conventional piston engine when all that was really needed was a turbine to provide compressed air instead. The compressor could be powered by a turbine in the exhaust flow. The remaining thrust would power the aircraft. He showed his ideas to a fellow officer, Pat Johnson, who was formerly an examiner for the patent office. 
which led to the concept coming before the base commanding officer, who encouraged Whittle to take his work to the Air Ministry. The only man who professed to understand the ideas that Whittle was working on, Griffiths from the Royal Aircraft Establishment, was convinced that the design was too simple and large, and he found a mathematical error, returning the papers, calling the concept impractical. The unintended consequences of this dismissal was that Whittle could retain rights to his ideas which would otherwise have become the property of the Royal Air Force. Pat Johnson, however, remained convinced that Whittle was onto something, and had him patent the idea in 1930. By now Whittle was a QFI at Central Flying School, and was considered a popular and gifted instructor. He was selected to perform at the 1930 Hendon Air Display, and destroyed two aircraft during rehearsals, luckily without injury, but the engineering officer said furiously, Why don't you take all my bloody aeroplanes, make a heap of them in the middle of the aerodrome, and set fire to them? It's quicker! An unexpected posting to become a seaplane test pilot came around, but so did Whittle's need to do a specialist course as part of his officer training. He took a two-year engineering course, which he completed six months early, with an aggregate of 98% in all subjects. The result of this exceptional performance was permission to take an additional two-year course with Peterhouse, the oldest college of Cambridge University, where he graduated with a first in the Mechanical Sciences Tripos. Whilst at Cambridge, Whittle let his patent lapse, as the fee was too much for him to afford, but shortly after he was approached by some backers who proposed a partnership to allow the development of his ideas to go ahead, and so Power Jets Limited was formed. Funding was sourced from Lancelot Law White, who said of Whittle, The impression he made was overwhelming. I have never been so quickly convinced or so happy to find one's highest standards met. This was genius, not talent. Whittle expressed his idea with superb conciseness. Whittle told him that, Reciprocating engines are exhausted. They have hundreds of parts jerking to and fro, and they cannot be made more powerful without becoming too complicated. The engines of the future must produce 2,000 horsepower with one moving part, a spinning turbine and compressor. The Air Ministry, however, still saw little value in their efforts, so power jets set up their own facility, building experimental engines in rugby. Work progressed quickly, and before a year was up, a prototype design was finalised, and parts were well on their way to being completed. However, competition was starting to appear. Griffith, who first denigrated Whittle's concept in his report to the Air Ministry a few years earlier, was now attempting to create his own engine, as was Wagner at Junkers and Hans von Ohain at Heinkel. Griffiths was again asked to report on Whittle's work, but the result of his write-up was that he himself attained financial backing and not power jets. 
Whittle's company was in desperate financial straits, but they pressed on regardless, producing a working engine that first ran on the 12th of April 1937. At last, Tizard, the Aeronautical Research Committee chairman, could see just how far ahead Whittle was and provided funds for a flyable version. However, the wheels of bureaucracy turned considerably slower than Whittle's turbines and it was years before progress could be made. Whittle was released from the Royal Air Force to work full-time on his engine. Now with government money, the company was subject to the Official Secrets Act, which made it near impossible to gather further public funding, delaying progress even more. In Germany, the world's first flyable jet aircraft, the Heinkel HES-3, was being built, and then war broke out. Whittle was under great pressure. The responsibility that rests on my shoulders is very heavy indeed. Either we place a powerful new weapon in the hands of the Royal Air Force, or, if we fail to get our results in time, we may have falsely raised hopes and caused action to be taken, which may deprive the Royal Air Force of hundreds of conventional aircraft that it badly needs. Whittle's engine was running for 20 minutes at a time, and at last more money became available from the Director of Scientific Research, David Pye, who was convinced of the importance of the project. At last, a flying engine could be developed. The contract went to the Gloucester Aircraft Factory. Three engines were under production. The original type that featured a reverse flow design where the air from the compressor was fed rearwards into the combustion chambers, then back towards the front of the engine, then finally reversing again into the turbine. This design reduced the length of the engine, thus reducing its weight. The second type was a larger version of the original design, but the third was a straight-through concept. Whittle had worked himself into a breakdown and was forced to rest, but eventually the W1X engine was ready for flight. Taxi tests were followed by short hops, but on the 15th of May, the W1-powered E2839 finally took off from Cranwell, flying for 17 minutes and reaching a maximum speed of around 340 miles an hour. At the end of the flight, Pat Johnson, who had encouraged Whittle for so long, said to him, Frank, it flies! Whittle replied, Well, that's what it was bloody well designed to do, wasn't it? Within days, the dumpy little experimental aircraft was exceeding the performance of the Spitfire, reaching 370 miles an hour at 25,000 feet. In Germany, however, despite lengthy delays in their own programme, the Luftwaffe beat the British efforts into the air by nine months. In 1943, Powerjets was nationalised and became a government-run company combining the gas turbine section of the RAE to become the National Gas Turbine Establishment. Whittle, who had spent some months in hospital recovering from nervous exhaustion, protested, but to no avail, and despite his enormous efforts, ingenuity and genius, he received nothing for his stock in the company. 
He resigned. Following his example, 16 Powerjet engineers resigned in sympathy. The war ended and Whittle was by now a group captain when, finally, some financial recognition was made and he received an ex gratia award of £100,000 from the Royal Commission on Awards to Inventors in recognition of his work. In later life, Sir Frank Whittle moved to the States and accepted the position of Naval Aviation Research Professor at the United States Naval Academy. He toured giving talks, often with Von Ahain, who helped develop the German jet turbine. In a conversation, Von Ahain stated that, If you had been given the money, you would have been six years ahead of us. If Hitler or Goering had heard that there is a man in England who flies 500 miles per hour in a small experimental plane, that it is coming into development, it is likely that World War II would not have come into being. Frank Whittle again became ill and finally retired from the Royal Air Force as an air commodore. He was made commander of the United States Legion of Merit, only heads of state receiving a higher award, and a few months later he was made a knight commander of the Order of the British Empire. He became a Fellow of the Royal Society and of the Royal Aeronautical Society. He joined such luminaries as Eddie Rickenbacker, Donald Douglas, Jimmy Doolittle and Chuck Yeager when he received the Tony Janus Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Civil Aviation. In 1991, he and Von O'Hain were awarded the Charles Stark Draper Prize for their work on turbojet engines. It is one of three prizes that constitute the Nobel Prizes of Engineering. Whittle died 20 years ago this month. He was cremated and his ashes were flown to England where they were placed in a memorial in a church in Cranwell. This is perhaps a fitting time to remember his contributions to our world of aviation.